HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Bordeaux Wines. Red, white, rosé, there's a reasonably priced wine for everyone and for every occasion. For more information, visit bordeaux.com slash US. Today's program is brought to you by Campari. For more information, visit campari.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and I have a really exciting guest for you today. Uh, Jared Slip is the estate director and master sommelier of uh, RDV Vineyards in Virginia. Um, And he's here with us. Uh, We're actually sitting outside uh, at Roberta's. It is a, a beautiful day here in uh, Pushwick, Brooklyn. Uh, Jared, welcome to In the Drink. It's great, it's great to have you here. I'm super happy to be here. Thanks so much. So uh, tell us a little bit about what you do. Estate director, you might be the first estate director we've had on, uh, on our show. So I, I, you know, for me, estate director is really just a, a fancy term for utility infielder. So if uh, I get my desk work done, uh, they let me play in the vineyard. I'm part of the winemaking team. Sometimes I'm uh, uh, pimping wine. Uh, today we're uh, up to New York for the Wine Spectator uh, experience. So, yeah, no day is ever the same. Keeps things exciting. Now, you've had an, a really interesting career before making it down to Virginia. Um, how did you decide to, to make this your, your, you know, your current step in your career? So I, I grew up in Maine, and I realized at a, a young age that uh, people have to eat and people have to die. And being a, a chef is a little more exciting than uh, being a mortician. So uh, I started out being... Uh, uh, you know, the cleanup guy at the little mom and pop uh, restaurant in the town I grew up in and then worked at uh, summer camps and then skipped my senior high school and went to local culinary school, went to CIA, went to school in Italy, traveled around and uh, I always wanted to have my own restaurant. So you could be the greatest chef in the world, but if you don't have the social graces, the PR skills, the business acumen, the wine knowledge, it's really just half the game. So I I came back from Europe and, and jumped the fence and started waiting tables and, and drinking wine and learning about wine and uh, then finally retired from restaurants and now I'm doing this. And 
Uh, I mean, you've been all over the world. How did you end up in, in Virginia? I, I went uh, two years ago and did a, a tour of the Virginia wine country. Mm-hmm. It was there for a few days. It's gorgeous, right? It's absolutely beautiful and, and much bigger than I thought. I didn't realize mm-hmm. there were seven AVAs in Virginia and yeah, 250 there's now, wineries. Yeah, over 200 and, I don't know, 60 wineries now. 60 wineries now. How did you, what, what drew you to Virginia? It seemed like someone who, with the experience that you had, your master sommelier, like you could, you have a lot of opportunities, I'd imagine. If, if you asked me five years ago if I'd be working at a, uh, a winery in Virginia, I'd want to know where you're uh, buying your crack. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't work at a winery in, in Virginia. I sort of work at the winery in Virginia. And... Um, um, I think I, I got into it for the same reason that the, the owner and founder, Rucker, uh, got into it in that it's a challenge. You know, we could have opened this in, in California and been uh, successful and made great wine and been uh, one of uh, hundreds. Whereas, uh, you know, in Virginia, we wanted to go to a, a wine region where they were making good wine um, and, and take it to a whole new level. So uh, be careful what you ask for. Uh, we definitely yeah. have our work cut out for us, but, uh, you know, it's uh, the challenges is what makes it fun. Yeah. I mean, Virginia is one of the historic wine areas of, uh, of the United States, right? Thomas Jefferson planted vines there. Yeah, it actually even started even before him uh, in Jamestown with the Treaty of 1616, where uh, every male over the age of 16 years old had to tend 10 vines. So uh, I don't know, uh, you were like when you were 16, but if uh, you gave me something to, to keep alive when I was 16, uh, it, it didn't work so well. So I had a hard enough time keeping myself alive, and so did they. So uh, it kind of withered and died, and then, you know, there's this renaissance with, uh, with Jefferson and all of these Italian varietals that he brought in. Even though he was a massive Francophile, he planted mostly Italian stuff. Um, but it wasn't really until the early 80s that it's it's, you know, become a... Uh, you know, a commercially viable uh, thing. And I think we're now the fifth biggest growing uh, region in the country. Great. So we I mean, go back this, and forth, this, us in Texas. Does this history, um, do you think about it? Does it inform anything that you do today? Or is what you're doing completely your own and, you know, uh, inspired by something else other than the history of, of the United States? No, well, you know, we're, we're very proud to be in uh, Virginia. I think we had a, a critic, I thought, rather astutely say both geographically and stylistically, we're smack dab between Napa and Bordeaux. I think our sensibilities mm-hmm. lean much more uh, uh, French, much more Bordelais, uh, but we still have that, that ripeness and, and power that you find in the, the New World, um, but with a little more restraint in the, in the winemaking from our mentality. Um, but varietals-wise, um, we, we just try to focus on, on one thing and do it really, really well. So, yeah. If you were to characterize the different AVAs, especially where you guys are located, um, what could you tell us about them geographically, climate-wise? Oof, that's a, it's Is a bit it? of a, a loaded question. I mean, we're in the, the Middleburg AVA, and the soil is totally different across the street from us. So how do you characterize a 120-mile swath of land? So um, uh, generally speaking, we're uh, kind of tucked into the, the, the Shenandoah uh, foothills, and then you actually have the Shenandoah uh, AVA, not to be confused with another one out in California. 
Um, you do have some, some coastal areas mm-hmm. as well, uh, northern neck, where you do get a, a, a much uh, cool. It's almost like a, I've had some really cool Chardonnays that are uh, really lean and have this almost kind of uh, Albarino-y uh, salinity thing going on, which is kind of cool. Which is a grape that's also grown in Virginia, right? A it, little bit. A little yeah. bit. You uh, see Chrysalis, Chrysalis makes some uh, Albarino not far away from us in, in Middleburg. And it's a it's a region that I mean when I was there I remember being interested uh, inspired a little bit by Petite Mansang, mm-hmm. Petite Verdot, some grapes that you don't necessarily see as being prominent grapes. Um, and you guys are focused on more Bordeaux blends. So so we do Bordeaux blends and and we put a, a fair amount of emphasis on Cabernet Sauvignon, which you typically don't see just because it it tends to ripen two and a half to three weeks later and uh our season can turn off with the the flick of a a switch so uh harvest for us wrapped up what maybe three weeks ago and uh and we got all our our fruit in really you know the day before it started Mm -hmm. raining like four days straight so tough to to hang stuff through that so Right now, the darling of, uh, of Virginia is really Cabernet Franc for reds. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they first started, they kind of hung their hats on uh, Viognier for whites and then realized that was a terrible idea because uh, Viognier is disgusting. It's the me, 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 enough about you. Let's talk about me grape. There's no acidity. It's all alcohol, and it's just horrible, at least in my opinion. So uh, people are, uh, are wising up, ripping it out, and, uh, and to your point, you know, lots of uh, cool petite monsan, gros monsan going in, mm-hmm. which makes infinitely more sense. Much thicker skins, mm-hmm. they're much more uh, resistant to the, the heightened disease pressure because of the extra humidity we have in the area. Um, and you can make it in a million different styles. You can have it bone dry, you can have it, uh, you know, dessert uh, sweet, you can make it sparkling, you can make it sparkling off dry all, and I've seen everything in between, so... Yeah, I get the feeling that your estate is kind of spare no expense, make the best possible wine. I mean, you you make only about 2,000 cases. We make about 2,000 cases, yeah. And you have a master sommelier, estate director, an enologist, a vigneron, a winemaker. I mean, uh, it seems to me that you guys are really just trying very hard to, like, spend money to make a great product. Like, how how how... Does a new winery establish itself and and do these things? Oof, I mean, there must be a lot of money behind it. Yeah, I mean, you think about uh, just for a second, like California, to buy an acre of like primo land in Napa Valley uh, hillside. By the time you buy the land, cultivate it, get the vines in, and you can actually make something, it's about a half million bucks an acre. Wow. Yeah. Um, so how much do you have to spell, sell that bottle of wine for to recuperate your, your losses? Uh, hundreds of dollars. So in Virginia, obviously, you don't have that, that land cost. But, um, you know, the, the mentality is always if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. And we're going to try to, you know, make our, our mark. Um, you know, again, we're, we're super proud to be in Virginia. But it's also one of the things that we kind of have to rail against for a little bit in that. Um, it, you know, if you're a journalist or you're a critic and you came to the winery, um, I would never in a million years just let you taste our wines by themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, my gosh, this is the, the best wine I've ever had in Virginia. Uh, okay, thank you very much. I, I know you mean that as a, a compliment, but uh, that's like saying, you know what, Joe? Uh, you have the best pizzeria in Uganda. What does that mean? 
oh, you're the tallest midget in Detroit. Okay, great. Uh, we have no desire to be the best winery in uh, Virginia. We want to be a world-class wine that happens to be in Virginia, uh, like Chateau Moussard happens to be in the Becca Valley of uh, right. Lebanon. Um, so in order to do that, yeah, even if you want to do it right, you know, certain things cost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, our barrels run fourteen to $1,600 a, a whack because we want, you know, Terenso from, uh, you know, uh, Troncé or Allier, and, and that's expensive, and there's a waiting list. Uh, our, our corks are over $2 each. Um, now, depending on what study you want to believe, you know, somewhere out of one out of seven and one out of 12 corks are, uh, or bottles are corked. So name me another industry where uh, we'll, call, we'll take the average, uh, a 10% failure rate is considered acceptable. It's like uh, General Mills. Oh, don't worry. Only uh, one out of 10 boxes of Cheerios has a dead mouse in it. No. So we spend a heck of a lot of money, but in the three years that I've been at the winery, I think I've come across maybe two dozen cork bottles. So uh, out of tens of thousands, uh, you know, that's, I'll, I'll accept that. Yeah. So some things, you, you know, you get what you pay for. Um, and it's exciting to be able to work with the, the, the people that I do. We're a really, really small team. I think there's nine of us uh, full-time. Uh, but, uh, you know, when we first started out, we had uh, every consultant known to man, a geologist from the county, from the state, from Virginia Tech, from the University of Maryland, two soil scientists from uh, Napa Valley, mm-hmm. uh, two professors of viticulture at the University of uh, Bordeaux, who then introduced the wines to a friend of theirs, Eric Wassenau, who was, you know, or is sort of the guy behind the curtain for almost any Bordeaux worth, worth talking about. I think he makes 88% of all the, the classified growths, all of the first growths in the Madoc. So uh, 190 chateaus on the left bank, and I think 10 more on the right. So um, it was cool that, you know, he decided that he would sign on to the project. Very Basically cool. sight unseen, barring tasting a bottle of the wine, so... And speaking of tasting a bottle of the wine, we actually have a bottle in front of us yeah. right now. Uh, thank you so much for bringing this. Oh, my pleasure. What, what are we drinking here? Uh, so this is the newest release that uh, we literally just released this past weekend. This is the 2013 uh, Lost Mountain. So we essentially make two different uh, cuvées, uh, Lost Mountain and Rendezvous. Um, the only rule, regulation, stipulation that we impose upon ourselves is when we sit down to do the blend, uh, Lost Mountain is always Cabernet Sauvignon dominant. The proportionalities of that will change every year, depending on what the, the vineyards give us and the vintage gives us. But it's definitely the wine with more more power, broader shoulders, more age-worthy, uh, tends to see more new oak. It's about 80% uh, new oak and then 20% second use. And I think in in this vintage, you're looking at 53% cab, 27 cab franc, and then the remaining 20 is Merlot. So uh, it's still a, a baby. It's big yeah. and, and juicy, but... Uh, um, I'd have to say, if nicely. you were to tell me five years ago, or even you know before today, that I'm going to serve you a young 80% new oak Cabernet Sauvignon wine from Virginia, I wouldn't be too happy about that. But this wine's delicious. Right. Well, thank you. It's it's really balanced. I mean, you say it's big, but the it's, tannins are really soft and supple. Really, there's some good acidity. It's not overbearing. Um, this is delicious. Right. As I said, you know, we definitely have uh, uh, ripeness to the, the fruit, but there's a, a restraint sort of in the, the winemaking. We don't want, you know, 16% alcohol, uh, alcohol juice fruit bombs. 
It's extremely drinkable. That's Thanks. that's really good. Some someone else who drank this um, is that it was re- recently served at the White House. Congratulations uh, yeah, the two, on that. Yeah, the 2001, uh, I'm sorry, 2010 rendezvous was at the the White House for a state dinner, what, a couple months ago for all the, the Nordic steaks, so... How did that come about? And what uh, was that? I have no idea, <laughs> but I, I'm not arguing. Yeah, so... That's fantastic. Um, well, I'm going to savor this wine a little bit. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more with Jared Slip from uh, RDV Vineyards in Virginia just after this. Cool. Bordeaux is one of the most reputable and well-known wine regions in the world. While many are familiar with its legendary first growths, there is so much more to discover. Bordeaux offers a dynamic and diverse range of wines, different styles, different colors, and different price points. Did you know that Bordeaux produces crisp, refreshing whites? Or that many of its outstanding reds can be opened now and don't need years aging? Or that it's really easy to find a great bottle of Bordeaux for under $20? With such a diverse offering, Bordeaux wines can pair with a huge mix of contemporary foods and cuisines. Bordeaux wines. Red, white, rosé, there's a wine for everyone. For more information, visit bordeaux.com US. When you talk about Campari, one of the first things that comes to mind is the inimitable and ubiquitous Negroni cocktail, a favorite of Heritage Radio Network's. Joe Campanelli, host of In the Drink on Heritage Radio, talks about the interesting history of the Negroni cocktail. The the classic Milano Torino, which is better known as the Americano cocktail, which is Campari, good red vermouth. Use good red vermouth like Carpano Antica formula, Contrado, Cocchi Vermouth di Torino, one of those, and soda water. Then later on in its uh, history was transformed into the Negroni, which substituted good gin for the soda water, something a little bit stronger. Count Negroni spent many years traveling the Midwest, the Southwest of the United States, found a penchant for strong drinks, and later went to London where he started to like his gin, brought that all back to his favorite bar in Florence and said, I'll take one of those Americano cocktails, but make it stronger, make mine with gin. And such was birthed the Negroni cocktail. Um, and now it's really popular. I find that people are asking for Negronis with agave-based spirits, uh, mezcal or tequila Negronis, especially mezcal, a little more popular. Um, so mezcal Negronis are really delicious. Experiment with your own Negroni recipe and enjoy it with Campari for a perfect cocktail creation. For more information, visit Campari.com. Please enjoy responsibly. All right, and we are back on In the Drink. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, here with Jared Slip, the estate director, and uh, he's a master sommelier at RDV Vineyards in uh, Virginia, um, making some really beautiful wines. We've been sipping the 2013 Lost Mountain. Um, You know, uh, last week, uh, President Obama gave uh, Donald Trump some... uh, I'd say he gave him a hard time about him complaining that the uh, the election is being uh, rigged. And Trump said to Obama, stop whining. Well, this is the show where whining is a good thing. Uh, and we're, we're happy to be whining with you this morning. Um, the other, uh, I'd say... Uh, winery that maybe people might know in uh, outside of Virginia is the Trump Winery. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's and he doesn't s- even drink. 
And he doesn't even drink. That's crazy. And How, his idiot Seddon was given, uh, like, winemaker of the year a couple of years ago. And I think he, like, choppers in, like, uh, one day a year. But don't get me started on that. <laughs> how do you go? I guess the point is, how do you go about um, letting people know about these wines outside of Virginia? I mean, these are, you say you want them to be world-class wines. I think right now most of the wines are served in Virginia, in D.C. Um, my, my friend has an outstanding restaurant that just opened in D.C. called The Dabney. He proudly serves your wines. Yep. Um, how, do you, how do you think about uh, expanding the reach of the wines? So, um, yes, I think if you do want to be world-class, you have to pay, play on a, on a bigger stage, um, which is a little difficult for us to do because we're so small. Uh, 2,000 cases is, is not a, lo- a lot, and most of that goes to our, our mailing list, and that goes all over the world. But, you know, it is important for us to hold some wines back and, uh, and uh, have it in restaurants and for window dressing and to have people come and taste it. Um, so we're in probably over 100 restaurants in the, the D.C., Virginia area, but uh, now we're trying to make inroads, uh, you know, outside. Uh, oddly enough, we're weirdly popular in Denmark. I have no explanation for that whatsoever, except uh, an importer came on a tour and dug it and bought a couple pallets. Uh, so that's cool. But, uh, you know, New York is New York. And, uh, you know, when I was in uh, restaurants, it was one thing to be a, a big fish in a small pond back in uh, Virginia and D.C. It's another to, you know, come and test your metal in, in the big city. So, uh, yeah, now we're looking at, uh, you know, uh, getting distribution in, in New York and uh, in uh, California. And, you know, it's kind of like bringing, you know, sand to a beach, you know, trying to import a Virginia wine into to California. But um, um, I get the sense that in California, though, tastes uh, are changing for so long. People in California were just drank so much Californian wine. Uh, but on recent trips there, going to restaurants, I'm seeing so much more European wine, uh, wines from all, all over the world. And so I, I think it's possible. It's great. The wine's delicious. I'm still, I'm still sipping it. I can't believe that this has over 14% alcohol. It doesn't feel like it. it it's just a energetic, beautiful, soft wine. So I personally prefer lower alcohol wines and uh you know i would i've gotten into conversations of you know where are the days of you know 12 5 uh alcohol in cabernets but at the end of the day i I don't care what the numbers are so long as it's a balanced wine um amarone can have 17 18 percent alcohol sometimes but it can be an amazingly balanced wine as as well um, but again, we, as we kind of try to... I'm going to call challenge on that one. <laughs> if you find me an Amarone at 17% alcohol, uh, I don't, it's not my thing, the Amarone. Yeah, I've had some pretty awesome Del Fiorno's and, uh, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. oh, who's the other one? It'll Quintarelli. Quintarelli. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, those are, those are pretty lovely. But outside of those two. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> Uh, sorry to interrupt your interrupt your point, but yeah, the wine is balanced and elegant. Um, uh, you know, you you mentioned a little bit uh, before that you, you guys do have some humidity pressure um, that you deal with. Um, uh, reading about uh, winery is character characterize yourselves as practicing sustainable viticulture. Um, how challenging is it to do that in an area where you do have? Um, uh, that, that kind of humidity pressure, and what does sustainable viticulture mean to you? So sustainable is kind of, honestly, it's kind of a, a bullshit term. 
um, if you want it to be. I mean, if you want to believe in it and practice it, great. But there is no legal uh, defining metrics that you have to adhere to. Um, you, you can be a, a lead certified building and, hey, we take uh, energy and put it back into the grid, but we spray the hell out of the grapes. Um, uh, organics are hard to do in Virginia. Biodynamics are hard to do in, in Virginia. And I think there's good things and bad things with uh, organics and biodynamics. So we, we subscribe to what the French call loot raisonné, which is, you know, reason, struggle, and, and we want them to, to fight and we want them to, to be stressed. But we're also not going to die the martyr. I mean, if we need to spray, we're going to go out and spray. Now, Typically, what we're spraying is uh, Bordeaux compound, sulfur, and copper. It's on the periodic table. It's about as organic as, as organic gets. Um, so we try to take the things that make sense to us from organics and biodynamics and sort of leave the, the crazy witchcraft behind. Yeah. And copper, I don't know if you could speak to this at all, but copper is something that uh, is a, a constant conversation even amongst organic and biodynamic producers, you're allowed to use that that copper, uh, the copper sulfate, the mm-hmm. the Bordeaux solution. Uh, but people are are trying to use less of it. These yeah, absolutely, days. because it's got a super super long half life. So you you'll spray it, but it ends up in the ground for for ages and ages and ages. So after years, it just compounds. So you want to you know it's like anything else. Uh, again, we want to use right. the absolute bare minimum uh, to to get away with what we're trying to do but you know and some is humidity of just, the, the the main culprit the thing humidity that you're is the the biggest culprit um and what that does is it heightens the disease pressure for uh mold and, and fungus and stuff like that but that's fairly easy to mm-hmm. combat the things that you really want to stay away from are like uh insecticides um that stuff is is bad news so like you look at the you know biodynamic calendar and the the farmer's almanac and you know it's going to be a bad japanese uh, beetle season well the japanese beetles they don't care about the fruit they eat the leaves so and they usually just around the perimeter of the uh, the vineyard so if we know it's going to be bad first thing we do is less leaf pulling around those first couple of uh, mm. rows to give them something to you know gobble up they end up doing the work for us it's easy they end up eating they end up eating the leaves that you were that, we were, anyway. that we were going to pull anyway Oh, that's so smart. I love these, like, just uh, uh, practical solutions, um, like creating a habitat for, you know, for the natural predator, giving, giving, the, giving the beetles some leaves to eat. Right, than... and we put in bat boxes and mm-hmm. owl boxes. We don't have any owls yet. Apparently it takes a couple of years for them to figure out that they've got a new home, but, uh, but we're excited. Um, you know, we have 175,000 bees, and, which has nothing to do with the vineyard whatsoever because uh, they self-propagate. But, uh, you know, it is sort of a, a canary in a coal mine. If you see that population start to go, then, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're going down the wrong road. And are these bees that you're actively cultivating yourself, that you're keeping the hives, or they're just naturally in the area? Yeah, so, I mean, we're, uh, I mean, even though we're, we're small, we're a, a working farm. We've got two cows and rabbits and chickens and, uh, and bees, and we've got uh, eight gallons of honey coming out of our ears right now. <laughs> Um, but yeah, they, they're just there to, you know, to, to pollinate and be happy and, and make honey for us really. Wow. Yeah. And you guys have about a hundred acres, right? Yeah. We just, we owned, uh, just over a hundred acres, but only 16 is actually planted to, to vineyard. Okay. So what does that other 84 acres do for the wine? How does that integrate in, uh, with, with the wine? Um, well, it's funny cause people always ask, uh, are you going to plant more? No. Um, 
you know, we spent a lot of time and money and, and effort identifying what the, the best parcels would be for, uh, for the, uh, the grapes, and, and we found it, and that's what we planted to. Um, the, the biggest secret that we have, perhaps, is, uh, is, the, is the land. You know, I firmly believe that uh, as soon as we pick our fruit or any winery picks their fruit, and as soon as it comes in the back door, all we, they can do is screw it up. So as cliche it is, is to say, it is true that the wine is actually made uh, in the vineyard. So um, Jose Andreas is a, a friend of ours, and, and he came out for Memorial Day weekend with a Michelin three-star chef from uh, Spain. Uh, I go down to the barn. I uh, get some stuff for lunch. If I come back with a bag of uh, rotten vegetables, how good do you think our, our lunch is going to be? I don't care how much passion and how much technique and, and how much uh, knowledge you have. If you start with a, a crappy product, you're going to finish with one too. So um, going back to that rain, um, not only does it heighten the disease pressure, but you know, climactically we're fairly similar to Bordeaux where our varietals come from. The biggest difference is we get one and a half to two times the amount of rain. And more importantly, it's how we get that rain. So if you've ever been to Bordeaux, it's just kind of gray and drab and drizzly the year round. Whereas here in Virginia, you'll get a thunderstorm that rolls through and you can get hammered with two inches of rain in an hour. So what happens is we have a very, very shallow topsoil. It's about eight to 18 inches, depending where you are in the vineyard. And then it's solid granite for as deep as we can drill. It's all hillside, south facing. Uh, So topsoil gets saturated, which is a good thing. You gotta give the vine something to live off of, otherwise they'll wither and die. But then it hits a solid granite has no place to go, slope of the hill kicks in, it all gets sluiced off the hill. So the secret is really hydraulic management by nature. We get enough water, but never too much because the land just won't accept it. And if there's one thing that you wanted our listeners to know about Virginia wine and especially RDV, like what, what should the takeaway be? What do they need to know about? Uh, I would say don't just dismiss it because it says the word Virginia. Taste it. I've brought uh, Linden uh, Hard Scrabble Chardonnay, who's a, a winemaker, one of the, the pioneers, uh, to, to be tasted by a bunch of Bordeaux winemakers, and they called it Batard Montrachet. Wow. Uh, if I just put the bottle in front of you and it says Virginia, you'd be like, no thanks. It's psychosomatic. I get it. And that's why, as I said earlier, I would never let you taste our wines uh, by themselves. So we always do it typically... Uh, alongside uh, first or second growth Bordeaux and really expensive uh, cult Cabernets from Napa. It's not a contest. It's not about who wins and loses so much as kind of leveling that playing field. And I've <laughs> so never had so anyone you're saying say if otherwise. our listeners come to visit you, they will not only taste your outstanding wines, but also cult Cabernets and expensive Bordeaux. We can do that. 60 miles away from Washington, D.C. Yep. Go there. Do it. Uh, Please. It, Virginia wine country is absolutely beautiful. D.C. has a burgeoning uh, food scene, just outstanding restaurants. Uh, I've, I've been going once or twice a year. I love it. Jared, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the oh, show. I'm happy to be here. Uh, In the Drink is uh, produced by David Tadashore and uh, Aaron Fairbanks at Heritage Radio Network. Uh, thank you so much to our sponsors, and thank you so much for listening. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.